I'd like to introduce you to Alexei Bagantz, who's a historian who's written a book called French Connection, Australia's Cosmopolitan Ambitions. Alexei is based at RMIT in Melbourne, and yes, he is indeed French, moved to Australia 15 years ago. Uh, welcome to our Petite Wireless Program. Thank you for having me. I'd like you to take us on a trek deep into the ancient forests of East Skipland at the turn of the 19th century and tell us of an encounter between the French consul and an Australian guide. So it's a very fleeting chance encounter that happened in the very late 19th century um, between the French consul, whose name was Paul Maitre, who was uh, stationed in Australia for a period of about on and off 20 years. He is a funny, interesting character. He comes back several times in my book. Uh, he's really an archival gift. He's a career diplomat, uh, dabbled in poetry, had a sense of humour that comes through his writing. He's quite self-deprecating. He makes fun of his own growing belly because of his overindulgences. He describes his own nose as being the colour of burgundy after the wine region and the colour to signal that it is reddening from drinking too much wine. And he also enjoys spending time away from work. And in this case, he's trekking through the ancient forests of East Gippsland and he's hired an Australian guide to show him around. I don't really know much about the guide himself um, because the encounter is recorded by Paul Maitre. But what Maitre does write down about the guide, undoubtedly with some pride, is that this Australian guide makes a show of extending his arm and opening his hand to reveal that he was carrying with him a miniature French book or a book written by a French author. And he also confides in not really knowing the French language. So when I started researching my book, initially I wanted to write about French migrants in Australia. And this very much goes back to my own story of migration. As you pointed out, I moved here 15 years ago came here on a working holiday visa, wanted to backpack around the country, but that never really happened. Fell in love with Sydney and then Melbourne and wanted to stay. So I started reading about the history of my forebears, Frenchmen and women who came here and decided to stay. So I found stories about um, peasants who migrated here from regions like Aquitaine, wine growers, the dynasties of wool buyers from Roubaix and Tourcoing in northern France, um, and other more extraordinary stories as well. But in a sense, these stories, the way they had been written about, they kind of left them gravitating around a more Anglo-Australian core history. And I wanted to try to bring them into that story. So I tried to bring the strands together. The Bushman, that, that guide, his treasured miniature book, the wool buyers and their families, migrants who stayed, and other Australian characters. And in the book, French Connection, I, I do that not by focusing on the French as a migrant group or not only on the French as a migrant group, but rather by looking at the idea of Frenchness. And I think of Frenchness here as a performance. It's a doing rather than a being. So I ask questions about why a connection to France and French culture mattered, not only to French migrants, but also to colonial Australians. Alex, I'm sure you're aware of the phrase cultural cringe. Australians Absolutely. were alleged to have this, uh, uh, well, to surrender, to uh, overly admire, particularly British culture. 
So this here's a non-French speaking man wandering through the forest of Gippsland with his French novels in the late 1800s. Cultural cringing? <laughs> I, I think there's an element of that. But in the 19th century, it's interesting to think where where that fascination with France comes from in in settler in British settler colonies, um, there's probably an element of cringing, but I think there's an element of wanting to define who Australians will become as a nation, and there's an individual level as well, and a story of of distinction. So in that story, that encounter between the consul and the guide, there's really the idea of the prominence of the idea of French culture in the British imagination. Both well, in you, you, make and the, you make the simple and powerful point that British culture was admired for commerce and industry, but the French for the arts, music, literature, and of course for food and wine. That's exactly right. So this 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 idea of of civilization that the British had uh, a certain flair or instinct in commerce and industry, and the French were champions of the arts, music, and literature, and um, and and that's very much the idea at the core of the book is that when Australians talk about France and French culture, there's a deeper meaning behind it, which has to do with who they wanted to imagine themselves to be, particularly as the colonies were moving towards federation. Tell me about Sarah Bernhardt's success in Australia. That seems to be very relevant. That's right. So that's also the, the idea that's, that's present in that encounter in, in the forest in Gippsland. So Sarah Bernhardt came to Australia in the 1890s, the early 1890s on a, on a tour. So she was a world-famous actress. Uh, when she came here, it really ignited a, a huge moment of Francophilia. There was a complete frenzy for French art and, and French things when she came to visit. But again, it's not just about a love of, of, of France or French things. It's not just about the Francophilia. It is about showing an appreciation for high art and French culture, which shows on an individual level that someone is cultured. Uh, or that someone is civilised. So people Forg- who Forgive me for interrupting, but I think it's important to tell the listener that the sainted Sarah always performed in French. Absolutely, yes. And there were subtitles to her performances. Um, and, and I think for a lot of people, it didn't really matter whether they understood the performance or not. The point was that they were there. And people who were attending the performance, uh, for instance, at the Princess Theatre in Melbourne in 1891, were said in the press to be behaving in a more well-mannered and courteous fashion <laughs> than they would normally have done. Yeah. So yet again, when, yet uh, there's a, a bit of trouble looming on the horizon. The French established the colony of New Caledonia. And this was to be a penal settlement, inevitably leading to some fear and tension. That's absolutely right. So the French in this period were the perennial enemy of Great Britain, but they were also a competing empire in the Pacific. And they colonised New Caledonia in the middle of the 19th century, turned it into a penal settlement. They tried to emulate the British experience in Australia, uh, just as the British were winding back transportation here, they decided to send about 30,000 convicts to New Caledonia. Now, that ruffled a lot of feathers uh, in Australia, partly because people didn't want to be associated with the, the convict stain anymore, um, but also because gradually convicts from New Caledonia, whether they be liberated convicts or escaped convicts, started coming here. So 
colonial governments in particular, and in Victoria in particular, were quite quick to seize on this opportunity to advance their own political agendas by demonising the convicts. Uh, in Victoria, uh, James Service, the Premier of Victoria, tried to demonise the convicts and also rouse the population against the French to try to push for the early attempt at federation in the 1880s. I like the, uh, the fact that there were publicly expressed concerns about the licentious French nation being so close and that the mustachioed sons of Gaul could invade in a matter of days. Well, that's absolutely right. So that's the sort of um, rhetoric that you'd find in the press and coming from politicians. What's interesting is that in the historical record, you also do find a lot of stories of, of compassion uh, and sympathy extended to the convicts from the population. So you see a discrepancy creeping in between the political discourse that tends to demonise them uh, and, and the real lived experience of people. Tell me about the Alliance Française de Victoria. The Alliance Française of Victoria, so the Melbourne branch of the Alliance Française. So the Alliance Française, as I'm sure that all your listeners know, was created in Paris in the 19th century uh, with the mission to disseminate the French language and French culture overseas in and outside of the formal French empire. So it's a form of soft imperialism, if you will. The branch of the Alliance Française in Melbourne was created or started by a woman called Madame Berthe Mouchette. Now, she's the celebrated founder of the Alliance. Uh, there is a poetry prize in Melbourne named after her that attracts thousands of entries from Victorian high school students every year. And it is there's absolutely no doubt that she's the founder of the Alliance. However, the Alliance was embroiled in a war uh, between the first committee of the Alliance that was formed around Berthe Mouchette and the consul, Paul Maitre. And that's why I say that he's an archival gift. So essentially, the first committee of the Melbourne Alliance was composed only of women, apart from one man who was the secretary. And because there was only women, they were all part of the establishment. Lady Janet Clark was the first um, honorary president, and all the other women were part of the colonial bourgeoisie. So quite naturally, these women used the Alliance Française as they would have done with other institutions. They used it as a social club. And the French connection there for them provided an umbrella of decorum and taste that sanctioned female sociability. But the problem is that a more tangible French connection, which was the point of the Alliance, was gradually lost. At one social event, for instance, one of the attendees told a journalist over a cup of champagne that if you have a good command of English and German, there is no point in learning French. So, of course, this enraged the French establishment and the consul, Paul Maitre, at the time. And he went on a 10-year-long crusade to try to reform the alliance and, and wrestle control away from them. And what I find interesting in this story, the, the point that is beyond the intrigue and the gossip, is that through this, this petty battle, we see two visions of France appear in the 19th century. So there's the French people on one side for whom this story is about national honour, it's about patriotism and the glory of France, whereas for the Australian women involved, we see that French culture is largely detached from the reality of the contemporary French nation. It holds meaning to them socially as an expression of a form of cosmopolitanism. Uh, in a sense, it's an asset in the game of refinement and distinction that helps to define their social world. 
Hundreds of French people arrive on the east coast of Australia in the second half of the 19th century, a, a ragtag bunch, and you point out that some preferred to lose their Frenchness as quickly as possible, but others saw that it had status and uh, played it up. Well, that's absolutely right. I think, and I can take myself as an example, as a, as a migrating Frenchman, that I've definitely played up on my Frenchness uh, moving to an English-speaking country. Uh, and you see that in the historical record as well. Uh, going back to the convicts, there is one convict who uh, escaped New Caledonia, went to Brisbane and reinvented himself with a completely new surname. Uh, he made himself, he gave himself a noble surname, uh, became a French professor of the Besançon Academy University or some randomly made up name of a university. And what's fascinating is that in his death certificate, his, uh, his profession is, is listed as gentleman. And his descendants only really found out that he was a fraud <laughs> about a decade ago. Yeah, my favourite story has to be the one about uh, J.F. Archibald, the founding editor of the Bulletin, and, of course, whose name lingers on in the Archibald Prize. He, miracula he miraculously turned French. He did. He did. He turned himself French. Um, so Archibald is a very interesting uh, case. I mean, there's no doubt that he was a Francophile. He, in his will, he he dedicated money to the building of the Archibald Fountain in Hyde Park in Sydney. Uh, he also made a point that the artist who was commissioned had to be French, but he did he did turn that Francophilia on onto himself. He affected Francophilia in his manner of dress, and he changed his name. So J.F. Archibald, he was born John Feltham and reinvented himself later in life as Jules Francois, which was sometimes butchered by others as Jules Francois. And it's interesting to think about how that invented or adopted Frenchness could help someone who, you know, is the founder of a uh, or the founding editor of a relatively racist and xenophobic publication to to do that with the authority of uh, the old world. And he also pretended to have a French-Jewish mother. Wonderful stuff. That's right. But for the numbers of French here historically, relatively few, as you point out, there was a disproportionate influence, wasn't there? That's right. So it's the paradox, I think, at the centre of the book. It's, it's seeing that there were quite few French people who migrated here, never really formed a community or an ethnic enclave like the Greeks or the Italians. Um, but there is this profound influence of French culture in Australian life, of, of this idea of Frenchness, which I think does uh, endure even today. World War One was a bit of a turning point for French-Australian relations. That's right. And, and today, today is Bastille Day uh, and, and Australians only really started becoming interested in celebrating Bastille Day at the time of World War I. Uh, the celebrations of Bastille Day in 1915, for instance, I think were the, the biggest at that point and the more lavish ones. 
Uh, in Melbourne, there was a parade of people dressed up as famous French historical figures. Uh, there was someone dressed up as Vercingetorix, the chieftain that united the Gauls, and someone dressed up as Louis XIV, the Sun King, flanked <laughs> by some of his mistresses. Um, and, and that really signals the beginning of a new era because Australia and France had become allies during the war. And this really changed the story and the relationship between the two countries and the way that Australians thought of France. Diggers went to the front. They, they went to France. They gained a first-hand experience. They took their leave um, to Paris. And after the war, the diggers came back here not only with first-hand experience, but sometimes with French wives. How extraordinary. I have to ask you, we've only got moments left, what became of this wonderful French consul? Oh, Palmer, well, like, chapter two of the book uh, would reveal that, but, but unfortunately the consul lost his battle against the women of the committee of the Alliance Française and was sent back to France. He was sent packing. Let's, let's leave it at that. Alexi, thank you very much. That was enchanting. Alexi uh, Bergantz rhymes with pants, let me remind myself, is the author of French Connection, Australia's Cosmopolitan Ambitions. It's published by New South. A delight to have you on, Alexi. Thank you very much. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.